Welcome to another segment of Class Talkers, the podcast of the Communications and Media Department of the State University of New York at Oneonta. I'm Tim Welch. Today's conversation is with film studies professor Nat Bauman, who's been in this position for a dozen years and speaks to a variety of topics on today's and yesterday's movies. In addition to talking about some of his favorite films, Nat talks about the technical efficiency of 21st century filmmaking and the expansion of the demand for narrative storytelling caused by streaming media. So you and I have something in common. We both like, as one of our favorite movies of all time, Lawrence of Arabia. Oh yeah, it's a fantastic movie. It's it's like a cathedral of a movie. And I always wondered, uh, uh, if I was crazy and thinking that was one of the best crafted narratives on film that I've ever seen, without a lot of women in it necessarily, and, <laughs> you know, didn't have didn't have all the components that you would normally want to think you should have in a film, but what a great story! It's a great story. I mean, yeah, it, I guess it's not a, certainly not a very politically correct film, but I suppose, but uh, it's 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 fantastic. I mean, it's got. Um, but Peter O'Toole at the time was was not well known. I mean, at least not in in, in movie biz. It was, right. it was one of his first big films. Um, David Lean was already huge, but um, oh, it's just it's fantastic. I, I it, it's such a it's such a powerful story. Um, I just I'm I love the cinematography in it. Um, and I love Omar Sharif. Yeah, he's so magnetic in that film. The two of them together. Who would have thought like Omar Sharif and Peter O'Toole would make such a great pair? Apparently, right. they were good friends while they were making the movie. Apparently, they got drunk a lot together. Yeah, <laughs> they got drunk because they were too afraid to ride the camels. Over. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah, there's something about that story of this uh, this man who is just he's trying to escape himself. Really, that's sort of how I look at the film. That. Hmm. Uh, well, of course, it was based on a true story. T. E. Lawrence was in fact a real person. I'm somewhat of a military history freak, so I was aware of the World War I implications of what we were seeing on the film. I'm not sure how accurate it was from a geopolitical standpoint, but um, it certainly had its basis in fact. Yeah, I think uh, Lean and the writer, I can't remember the name of the, the central writers on that film right now. I, I know they were, they were really interested in Lawrence's sexuality in, in that mm. film. Um, and I, you know, I sh- actually I show that film in. I used to show it in a class I used to teach, and some students sort of pick up on it, and, and, and some really don't. I mean, there were rumors about Lawrence's sexuality, whether he was uh, homosexual or asexual. It was never really quite clear. And in Lean's interpretation of the character and his exploration of the character, right. Um, he sort of seemed to envision somebody who just couldn't really accept himself completely for who he was. He was always a little bit outside of himself. Um, I think of that uh, scene that happens r- really early on in the film when he's called in to talk to, what was it, a colonel or a general? Yeah. And he goes into the officer's mess and he's like, he's talking to them and he doesn't really seem to click with them. Um, and he puts all the billiard balls into the, into the, rack and then and then he wrecks it like they're trying to set up a game and then he's oh, like yeah. he, he wrecks that and they're mad at him like why did you do that and then he's backing away from it and he stumbles 
and crashes into a tea tray or something. Yeah. And it's like he just doesn't fit. Yeah. Um, and Peter right. O'Toole is such a, like a, a graceful actor. His physicality is so put together. It's weird to see him doing that. Mm. Um, and he doesn't really find, he doesn't find himself or feel comfortable until he's in a completely alien environment. Um, when he's out in the desert, and that's really when he allows himself to feel more, more comfortable, and in a completely foreign culture. Yeah. And yet he rallies them to do great things. Yeah. I sort of view it as the story of somebody who's trying to dissociate themselves from their body. If they're not completely comfortable with who they are, um, their sexual identity or their sexual orientation. I think that's what the film is sort of trying to get at a little bit. He's trying to separate himself from his body as if, like, I can overcome those limitations. Um, that's why we see him sort of holding that match in his hand, mm. um, letting it burn down to his fingers. He's mm. testing himself physically over and over again. Um, and then that we had that famous graphic match cut of him holding the match and it burning down till it almost reaches his fingertips and then that cut is matched to the the sun rising over the desert and that's going to be his new physical test it's like if i can transcend the limitations of my body if i can transcend the problems i have with my identity and separate my my uh, spiritual or mental self from my physical self then i could be something more than what i am hmm. um, interesting i never I never thought of that perspective, but that's there. <laughs> and then it leads to his downfall because then he starts to think that maybe I'm some sort of deity on some level. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful movie. Beautiful. And you know, I mention that because I, I, I almost feel that uh, movies today that you see in the theater that make it to the box office, um, the last movie based on a real historical event that I remember was Titanic yeah. 21 years ago. And, and uh, uh, you know, everything else is cartoons and um, superheroes and fraud, you know, people pretending to be something they could never be. Yeah. I, I, that, uh, the, I think the, the top grossing film of the year for so many years has either been a kids movie, um, a m movie expressly aimed at like teenage boys, like 14 year old boys, mm. or uh, part of a franchise that has been doing both. And usually not something having to do anything with reality. I think like the last film that the highest grossing film of the year that didn't fit those categories was uh, <sighs> It's probably like that movie Ghost. I don't know if you remember that one. <laughs> oh, yeah. The, uh, I can't remember her name, but uh, the Patrick Swayze was in Patrick it. Patrick Swayze, sure. Yeah. Yep. And then like a couple of years before that, was that one? No. And then, so that was sort of aimed at adults, I would say, kind of. And then two years prior to that, there was Rain Man was the top grossing film. That's so right. That was, uh, so Dustin Hoffman, yep. Tom Cruise, and that was absolutely aimed at adults but lately it's just been even the movies that we can say are more adult films in the past like 20 years it's hard to say that, like it's really aimed at actual adults I sound like I'm talking about pornography or something <laughs> but <laughs> no but I feel I mean I I'm the one who started down that line because it almost seems like the real great movie quality work is now being done by streaming media that in many ways the the money 
uh, is going into episodic television. There's something like nearly 500 hours of drama being produced right now by ABC, NBC, AMC, um, Netflix, um, a whole bunch of uh, different kinds of, uh, of work is being done for the small screen, if you will. Um, and, and there just seems to, the, the large screen seems to be a one-trick pony with uh, fantasy. Yeah, I mean, and it's hard to say what's, what's the cause of that, whether it's the movie industry driving serious drama, um, driving audiences to television to go get their serious drama, or whether the audiences stopped showing up, so they had to sort of cater to a smaller and smaller, I don't want to say smaller market, but a more narrow, a more narrow market. Yeah, I mean, there is, you know, when I was in um, film school, you know, I was, um, I was a screenwriting concentrate, and everybody was, we were talking about television a bit. Everybody was interested in TV and what was going on. The Sopranos had already been on and stuff. And I think uh, Deadwood was still, well, Deadwood had been over, but not long. But television was big, but most of the writers were still thinking in terms of movies um, and feature-length film. And now at um, Columbia, it's, you know, TV is huge. TV writing is huge. Serious drama writers are all really interested in going there, and um, which I mean I, I appreciate what's going on in television for sure. Uh, a, I think it's there's some amazing writing in, on shows these days. It would appear to be a golden age. Certainly, a lot of money's being thrown at it. I mean, somebody described it to me one time as, "Of course, you're going to see that kind of stuff because the real serious movies get stolen so quickly they don't have a ch- chance to catch an audience." So who would who would invest $150 million in this one film that somebody will probably leak uh, for $40,000, will steal a, uh, a rough cut of it in digital form and, and make DVDs out of it and sell them in China and India before it ever has a chance to make its money back? Hollywood seems to be making plenty of money, though, um, yeah. like with these like superhero films and such. They keep on making them, and they seem to be making a lot of money. I, my students, I, most of them really like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> they're, they're fans, and they're uh, fun to watch. You know, they're, they're it's okay. They're chewing gum <laughs> for the mind. Yeah, I've I've had enough chewing gum. I need some. <laughs> I need some more serious nour- nourishment. I think, I, I and I think there is. I mean, I sound like a, a I sound like a grouch, but I think that. Uh, it's a mistake to just sort of let um, assume that okay, cinema we can let that be for the teenagers or or just bubblegum entertainment, and we can turn to serious drama. We can we can turn to TV and get great content there, and, and just sort of write the feature length form off. Um, I just I've been watching a lot of serious dramatic TV shows and really enjoying them, but I really miss that experience of a really well told story that's done in two hours that it's just it's over that's it there's something so cathartic about that a Mm. really well told story where you feel like you've gone on a satisfying journey and you know it's going to end when when this when this two hours is is over um i mean it's so hard to do it's so hard to it's write. hard to do it's hard to do well and 
and uh, of course you've got to meet a deadline and and you've got to have a story that has a beginning a middle and an end mm-hmm. um, and it, and in a lot of the episodic television that I was referring to on Netflix or or Hulu or what have you um, a lot of the series that they green light the television series the episodic series uh, they'll give them a green light for a year then two then three then maybe in the middle of three they'll let them go do four and I keep wondering if how do they write a script uh, that's really compelling when they're not sure if they've got season four when they start doing it yeah um, so yeah they get through season three and then what are you going to do with season four I don't like. I mean, it's it's pretty clear that some series go on way longer than they should. <laughs> yeah. Downton Abbey, you know, they had that was like a mini series that withstood like one extra season, but everything after that was downhill. Um, but yeah, milk. But people demanded it. People love the characters. People love the time period. People love the the clash of cultures and manners and the upstairs downstairs thing. Yeah. I think like Downton Abbey was a classic case of, um, I, I think there's a few shows out there like that where it, it, it you can set up a uh, drama in a world where there's lots of rules, right? So a rule uh, like in, uh, in Downton Abbey, it's, um, what is it, it, was that Edwardian, Edwardian times? I suppose. It, I think so. The, uh, so there's of tons of social rules, right? Um, and you get this this conflict because of all these rules that people have to obey and then occasionally people kind of break them a little bit or bend them but once you break it x amount of times it's like they don't matter anymore <laughs> and you're done like the series is completely over and that happened pretty quickly with Downton Abbey and then again it was the period around World War One, mm-hmm. uh, which changed a lot of things from an historical standpoint yeah and uh Perhaps bankrupted Britain. <laughs> yeah. Well, World War One. When did Gone with the Wind come out? Thirty-nine. Thirty-nine. Okay. And some people say that was a uh, that was an, uh, a function of the uh, lost cause phenomenon, where uh, a lot of University of Virginia professors and even some in New York City were. Uh, trying to say that the Civil War was all about states' rights and uh, preserving the Southern way of life and the Southern aristocracy. And it really was, I mean, that's, that slaves were civilized and given religion by uh, the Southern aristocracy and what's everybody getting so excited about. Hmm. And it was a way to um, uh, talk about um, the old South, antebellum South, in a way that was more romantic than real. Yeah, well, it certainly seemed like a very romanticized version of the South. It's like it's in, well, I think Gone with the Wind is probably adjusted for inflation. I think it's one of the top-grossing films of all time still, um, still beating out like Avatar and things like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean th- that was part of the era where war films were really popular. I mean, around World War Two, World War One, war, war films were extremely popular. I'm not sure what the Right, and that was just before war broke out in Europe. Right. I'm not so sure what the um, <laughs> the uh, uh, the the incredible amount of superhero films we have out right now. What that says about our culture, <laughs> exactly. What our preoccupations are. Well, my wife loves them, you know, and I I like to go see them. You know, it's 
it's good popcorn fodder. And I like going to the movies. And yeah. I don't want to see that go away. I don't want to see that movie-going culture disappear. And I wonder if the proliferation of screens, small screens, flat screens, and uh, uh, the home screen, if you will, I don't want to see that eliminate the box office reality. Yeah, I'm, I'm still... Uh... I still find going to the theater a thrilling experience. I mean, just I, I like sharing a space with some strangers. We're all there for the same thing. We're all there to be entertained and moved by something. And it's like one of the few areas in our culture these days where like we sort of come together a little bit as a community, even though I'm not talking to anybody. <laughs> some of my friends, it's still, there's still a little bit of a feeling of that. And just seeing that um, image on that giant screen, it, it has a powerful effect. I've heard that um, uh, a friend of mine who teaches in psychology has said that um, that when uh, the audience is watching a movie on a big screen in a dark theater um, and the frame rate of the film is about 24 frames per second, so you have an image, and then between each image you actually have a little bit of black between each frame of film. Mm -hmm. When you have that... Um, Persistence of vision. Yeah, um, when you have that refresh rate, essentially, of image, black, image, black, about, at about 24 frames per second in a big dark room on a big screen, apparently, um, and I'm not sure if this is true or not, but I've, I've heard that apparently the audience undergoes a very, very mild state of hypnosis. Hmm. Interesting. Um, which might be part of the reason why we find the experience powerful. <laughs> yeah. And I don't want to lose that. No. No. A mild I don't mind a little hypnosis. hypnotism once yeah. in a while. Yeah. It's not bad. It's good. <laughs> Cleanses the mind a little uh, bit. It anesthetizes me. Yeah. So what do you think uh, is the future of this windowing phenomenon that Hollywood wants to maintain and seems to be at odds with the reality of uh, home entertainment? So what do you mean by windowing? Well, the notion that the people who produce Hollywood films, they need to have a certain amount of time that the uh, movie is in, the, in a theater, mm. a certain box office period. Then there used to be a DVD period. Then there used to oh, be right, a, right, uh, right. a period when it would go uh, to the streaming services and a, uh, a period that then it would go to um, cable and then it would go to the network broadcasters. Right, and how that's being dissolved, particularly by Netflix. Like, yeah, right. Yeah, that? that that business model, that windowing um, allocation of money or, or different sources of revenue, is obviously DVDs have evaporated. Uh, that that they really like. First of all, they fought DVDs because it was a form of copyright infringement. They thought, or and before that, VHS tape, and uh, then when that went away. Um, you know, the ability to download uh, occurred with the Internet, but it's really streaming that has captured the imagination and threatens not only movies but television or broadcast television and cable. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, part, part of me wants to sort of protect uh, the movie industry's um, 
separating out those revenue streams to sort of say, okay, it's got to get to the theater first, and then we'll let it get to those other avenues. So to, to try to protect the theater going experience a little bit, um, I'm a, I'm a little bit conflicted about it because uh, what what did uh, Steven Spielberg? He was he he was kind of appalled about uh, Roma, right? Uh, the Netflix film that oh yeah was just at the Oscars because it was going to get. You know, they just put it there for the purposes of getting an award. Right. He didn't think it should be eligible. I don't know. I, I, I sort of get what he's saying, but it was a great film, right? And, yeah. And I, I, if if those are the rules, get the film out there, get into the theater if that's what you have to do. But um, I want movies like that to be made, I guess. Well, everybody plays with the Oscars. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's all about marketing the film. Uh, we all know that there's politics involved in all the voting. Uh, you know, that they vote for people who have black stars. If it's time to have some black people getting awards and uh, where it's time to have women get awards or women directors or, uh, you know, in so many ways it's po- it, it becomes a, a politically correct way of promoting, of, of marketing the film. Hmm. That's the cynical view. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I... Uh, <clears throat> While I want the theater experience to continue to exist, I also just think that, um, you know, if if you're not, I, I don't think the theater experience will continue to exist if uh, Hollywood keeps on churning out material that is fun, but it's the same kind of stuff over and over again. Um, and um, I think that... Um, I want to see uh, if if Netflix can make a film that's good and put it out on the uh, on their service and then get it out into theaters. I'll go see a movie like that in the theater if I if I hear it's really great. Even if I've seen it on the small screen, I'll go out and see it on the big screen. I know I'm kind of a movie buff, so I'm I'm, I'm maybe I'm a small audience <laughs> representative of a of a small audience, but um, I don't I don't know. Uh, I think that movies should just be like they should have to compete for that space and if you can't attract people to the theater then um oh well i guess Um, well the other phenomenon is the international aspect of film and the fact that everybody wants to get into the chinese market now and you're seeing a lot of films who that have to since there's a, th- I think there's a 34 film lim- limit on international films that can get into China in any one calendar year, and mm-hmm. so they have to compete for being one of those 31 movies, and they very often do that by having a Chinese-friendly script or Chinese people in the movie. Sure, um, and and you know, and the action movies are easy to sell, right? Um, right. Internationally, they cross the language barrier right even more easily. Uh, language and cultural barrier more more easy than say a comedy would. I sort of miss the days of like the, I don't. Know, um, my w- one of my favorite eras in Hollywood was the seventies. Um, William Goldman was um, still writing then. Um, he's one of my favorite screenwriters. He wrote uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid oh, and yeah. a bunch of others. And he had a, a phrase um, he used to say in, in in Hollywood, nobody knows anything. Um, <laughs> And he just meant that they nobody really had a clue where the next big hit was coming from. 
for a long time, Hollywood did, like was just sort of guessing as to what was going to be big box office. And that kind of opened the field up a little bit, right? You didn't know if you were going to miss out. Like if you passed on this project and some other studio got it and it was a huge hit, you looked pretty terrible. Um, and it allowed for a little bit more creative freedom. Um, but uh, these days, Hollywood seems to have it down to a science, or at least they think they do, right? Um, there's, you know, you're doing a franchise film, you're doing uh, intellectual property that's already existed that ha already has a proven audience, all that kind of stuff. Um, so it's no longer nobody knows anything. It's like. But if somebody's got a good story like Green Book, you know, that was a great movie. I haven't seen that one yet. Oh, I really love that one. I mean, it was a great story. It was kind of melodramatic and maudlin, I suppose. But it was based on a true story of an African-American uh, pianist who was really a classical pianist who, you know, kind of dumbed down some of his music in order to be able to uh, be popular. And uh, he went, he wanted to go down south and see if uh, people would perhaps be inspired. And this was the South in the 1960s, uh, uh, whether or not they'd be inspired enough to, you know, perhaps overcome their their problems uh, as African Americans in the South at that time, and it was just a, a great story of, uh, you know, people overcoming problems, and even he overcame some other problems with the help of the his driver, mm -hmm. a white driver. So it was really a great story, and I wondered. Uh, if the guy who wrote the screenplay had to go out and make the film himself because he could never sell that in, in Hollywood. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Um, who, do you remember who directed that? I don't. It was a black guy. Okay. I don't remember who it was. I don't remember his name because I never heard of him before, but it was based on a true story. Hmm. In other words, this African-American was, in fact, a very good um, piano player, classically trained, and... Uh, wanted to see how he would be accepted in the South in the 1960s, and you can imagine it wasn't very good. That's huh. why he took a white driver with him, and the Green Book was all about the places that African Americans could stay uh, without getting in trouble, Okay, where they could go to eat, where they could, what well, hotels they could stay in, because, of course, whites, there were white-only hotels, and places where African Americans could go. So it was a great movie, a, mm -hmm. a great story of Americana. Yeah. Uh, but I wondered if that kind of a movie could have been made in today's Hollywood without the director coming up with the script himself and making it himself. I don't, yeah, it's a, it, it seems like it's, it's pretty hard these days. Um, uh, and part of the problem that uh, I, I think part of what's pushing Hollywood a little bit w away from sort of... Um, being more adventurous with stories, like being able to tell a story like that is getting harder and harder to, to sell to big studios. The, the, stu the star system has kind of dissolved, right? Um, at least partially. It used to be like if you wanted to get studio backing or significant backing, right, you had to assemble a certain amount of star power, right? Um, yeah. And you could, certain stars had a, I mean, there was literally just, a, it was a, absolutely a point system. Big stars had X number of points, but you could get a movie funded if you could get a bunch of smaller stars together. They could add up to the appropriate point value um, and, and things like that. 
And if you could gather the stars who were interested in the story you were telling together, you could get the movie made. But that isn't quite, doesn't quite work that way anymore. Even if you have talent attached to it, um, it's not that in and of itself isn't going to sell a movie necessarily. And, and uh, the stars just don't have as much pull as they used to. I don't think audiences today are quite as interested in seeing so-and-so on the screen. Um, they're sort of less drawn to movie stars than they used to be, I think. And yet I would think Disney has to start making a lot of product. They're going to have their own streaming service. They've, of course, they've got a tremendous back catalog that they can bring and, in fact, take away from the competition, uh, which they will do as soon as Disney Plus is launched. Mm -hmm. I keep thinking that this will create, this will be a movie-making mill, a movie-making engine for... Uh, Hollywood to have this additional demand through streaming media. Yeah, maybe. Um, it, it's kind of an exciting time. I mean, as, as down as I am about Hollywood, it's, it's also kind of an exciting time to be a, a filmmaker. Um, if you don't expect to suddenly become a household name and be working with top name actors, which nobody ever should have that expectation. <laughs> um, I mean, the, the, the thing I find exciting about filmmaking now is it's, although it's harder to get noticed because there is so much content and stuff out there, it's just so much easier to, to make stuff. Um, the kind of equipment you can get your hands on now, you can get a camera that is less than $1,000 that's going to get you extremely cinematic images, um, you know. Obviously, we haven't been shooting film for quite a long time. I mean, I was probably the last generation of film students to actually get their hands on film and do some shooting with it. Well, film just became too expensive. I mean, to yeah. distribute a, a two hours worth of 70-millimeter uh, film, cost, somebody told me it was $1,800 a theater. Yeah. Oh, it, it, it was an extraordinarily expensive medium. Now you don't have to worry about that, and you get something made, you make something with your friends. I mean, think about uh, John Cassavetes, who's, if he had the tools that we have today, he would have had such an easier time. He's legendary independent film director, um, late 60s and 70s. Um, controversial figure, but he, was, he made some amazing movies, yes. uh, and he made them with friends of his, phenomenal actors, but friends of his, over the period of like, like every, they would work like every weekend for like a year to make a film, and they would finance the film themselves, like you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars, which you know, is not a, a nothing amount of money, but it's certainly not a big budget. Um, and then, and you know, they had to get you know the film equipment, pay for all that. They had to have a fairly large crew. I mean, they had a tiny crew for for the day, but um, they still needed a fairly large collection of people. And then, to get the movie seen, Cassavetes would uh, travel around this country peddling the movie at, um, at colleges. Right? He would show up at a campus and screen his movie and run to the student union and try to convince people to come and see it, hmm. um, trying to generate some word of mouth so maybe it would get some kind of distribution someplace. I mean, he had to work his butt off. and It's not like you don't have to work your butt off today, but if you want to get eyes on your screen, you can put it up on the web and start to get a following that way. So the technology is such that it really allows for films, high-quality films, to be made relatively inexpensively. Relatively, but it's cheap. still a collaborative kind of experience where, you know, you need somebody to worry about lighting and sound and staging. And yeah, talent still matters. People to help you out still matters. Um, 
but it's just it's so much easier than it used to be and and getting putting the film out there in a way that people can see it even if it isn't at an actual movie theater even if it's just on the small screen at least you can get people to see it right um so you have a lot more filmmakers like the the bar to get into it is lower but um but i think overall it's it's much nicer to have a, a more democratic kind of medium. Is that what excites your students about being film majors? Is the prospect of getting into it themselves? Do they have stars in their eyes? Do they have realistic expectations? Yeah, I wish more of my students were film majors. Um, I mean, they're uh, they. I a bunch of my students are really interested in film, um, uh, and. Uh, I don't know if they're. I don't know if they fully realize how lucky they are to be in the position they're in. <laughs> I think because they're so used to like moving images are everywhere now. Yeah. You can pick up your phone and and, yeah. and take a, a pretty good shot. You're shooting 4K on your phone now. Yeah. Um, so I I they have an appreciation of the medium. Um, I don't know if they're, I think they just sort of have expectations that I'm going to be able to shoot something great. (laughs) Um, One of the things that I sort of work on them with is, um, yeah, you have these tools, but it's just, it's, it's the individual talent of the people that you're working with and then harnessing that um, and getting people to collaborate with each other effectively. Those are rare skills, um, and, they, and it needs you need time to develop those things. Um, so, um, I mean, I think it, it's it's still a really difficult medium. Even if the tools have gotten much more accessible, um, the the most essential skills um, are still really challenging. It's a really challenging medium. But of course, it's important to have composition skills, skills where. Um, you're plotting something out, you're outlining, you're uh, creating a screenplay, everything starts with the written word and so many, or anything of that magnitude must start with the written word, Mm -hmm. wouldn't it? Um, Yeah, I guess, uh, well, in general, that's true. Um, If we're talking sort of fiction, film, um, narrative cinema, uh, one thing that the digital digital revolution has allowed more of and and has encouraged is uh, much more improvisation in front of the camera, I think, hmm. um, in, in low-budget environments as well as higher-end films. But I mean, there was—it's not as big as it as it was a little while ago. But uh, there was this this uh, genre film called Mumblecore, which was basically twenty-year-old, uh, early twenties, late-teens filmmakers with no money shooting films in their lofts and in Manhattan and it was just people talking at each other and uh, it was almost all improvised and some good films came out of that um, most of them not so great but um, but some were good I, I guess I mean yeah it's most great films have a serious script right? <laughs> um, but I do I do admire like uh, some directors are able to work with improvisation really well well and there's some real energy that comes out of that um, and it's easier to do when you know, ten minutes worth of shooting costs almost nothing. Yeah. Whereas if you're shooting ten minutes worth of film, it's going to be hundreds of dollars. At There's least. no film stock, right? Yeah, but uh, no, um, no. The the written word is still still where it's at. It's funny that um, 
screenwriters are still kind of the most downtrodden people in the whole system. <laughs> yeah, they were, aren't they involved in a union dispute now with the, with the uh, Writers Guild? Yeah. Um, that the, and they think the Writers Guild is selling them out by packaging well, films? They're, they're, yeah, they're in a dispute. I don't fully their, understand it. They're, in a, they're, they're having a fight with the agents, right? All, all screenwriters, are, screenwriters are supposed to fire their agents. Because um, huh. the agents have been packaging, doing these package deals. Oh, okay. Um, and the agents are making a lot of money doing it. And screenwriters in general are making less money because of it. So they put the crew together and the talent together and, the, and they buy a script and they put their own property together? As I understand it, I don't think they're putting a crew together, but they're sort of linking up a couple of actors with some intellectual property and things like that. Hmm. Yeah. Well, of course, when I was in the television business uh, a while ago, everything was union, and there was a union for people in front of the camera and a union for people in back of the camera, and I wasn't allowed to touch the camera or edit or any of the editing equipment. I, the only thing I could touch was a stick mic, and um, now that's all changed back at the same uh, operation. The, the union just isn't that tough, but I would imagine it's still pretty tough in Hollywood. I think so. When when I was doing let's see, when I was doing production work in uh, in New York City, um, yeah, union shoots were pretty strictly controlled. It seemed like I forget which. So depending on what union you're in, the director of photography can't touch the camera, and a different union they can operate the camera. Hmm. There's, a, there's still a lot of rules like that. Um, it's been a while since I was doing freelance production work, but I imagine it's still pretty much the same. Yeah, there, there are a lot of crazy rules, which is partly why a lot of production went to uh, Canada. But yep. Yeah, Vancouver's a big site for that, Toronto. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I suppose New York City is, has always been big, and I guess uh, I just saw that, uh, is it Netflix going to set up a studio in Brooklyn? That would be great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I just read that uh, they were committed to setting up five or six sound stages in Brooklyn. That'd um, be wonderful. It'd be great for our students. Yeah. yeah, I think I just read that, and I, I, I can't remember the details, but I'm pretty sure I have the large details right. Okay. I don't really know. It was supposed to be $100 million, hmm. so it was a significant commitment to the infrastructure and and Google has something like that for YouTube uh, out on the West Coast where they provide the environment the theater the uh, the technical support for YouTube content creators if you will hmm. uh, does that interest any of your students um, I, I hope that it does I think that my students they uh, I mean when I'm, I'm talk to them as filmmakers or whatever they're doing in media I think they need to have a really kind of an entrepreneurial mindset um, I mean I, I, I don't feel like I'm training students to enter a, a particular industry um, I, you know, I think that they have to be able to sort of look at the media landscape and kind of steer their own ship and, and figure out where they want to go and what they're going to need, what kind of skills they're going to need to acquire to get there and be as flexible as they can. Um, I mean, I know that's happening. If you're interested in film and you think you're going to get some kind of 
job in a studio somewhere or you're going to be under contract or something for the rest of your life. I mean, it's, it's just so hard to get there these days. Yeah, I mean, I, I worked in radio to get into television. I don't even know if that path is still open to people. I mean, if they want to, if they want to do that and, and, you know, getting into television news, uh, I don't know what the path is today. It used to be radio, but radio news doesn't really exist that much anymore, except on NPR. Right. And, uh, the methods for getting in are, I'm sure, have changed. One of my uh, classmates from film school who um, was a, a screenwriting concentrator, one of my more successful classmates out of there, she started off, actually her first paying gig was writing for video games. Hmm. Um, she wrote um, screenplay for video games and then um, from there moved on to um, uh, a Narcos, a big Oh, show. yeah. Um, that was one of my favorites. Yeah, I watched the whole series. There's a lot of like it's. There's so many different pathways to uh, to get in these days. But it like, I mean, the jobs are so difficult. One, uh, I have another friend that um, he started off as a uh, he started off in architecture school, and realized that he didn't really want to he didn't really want to design buildings like real buildings. Um, he wasn't that interested in that. And he got a job working for another video game company, um, designing the actual spaces that the video game characters interacted with, mm. um, basically doing layout for that. And he was he was really interested when he was a kid. He loved the Lord of the Rings books and stuff like that. Um, he always wanted to, um, if there was going to be a movie version of that, he was so excited. Um, and he heard that that there were going to be movies made out of those books. And he thought, well, maybe I can somehow transfer my skill base over there. Um, so he continued to work in the, the video game industry. And then he moved to doing layout for animated spaces, like for, for films, and eventually got himself a job at, uh, at Weta, the digital effects company in New Zealand that oh, yeah. um, did all the Lord of the Rings movies yeah. and Avatar and stuff. And he got a job there, and the first film he worked on was the first Hobbit movie. Huh. Um, and then he also worked on Avatar. Um, actually, no, he worked on Avatar first, um, and uh, and then and then the Hobbit movie. So yeah, people are getting there in, in really disparate ways. Well, you mentioned video games twice, and um, I've read that video games have eclipsed the box office receipts of movies. We thought it might have been all about gaming, but in many ways, it's all about entertainment for the masses, and it's big money. And yeah. now it's turning into a spectator sport besides that. Yeah, I think um, in my students, if they're more united. They have more shared experience with video games than they do with film anymore. Hmm. It used to be that they've all seen the same sort of collection of movies. Nope, but they've all played the same video games. It's, it's more of a unifying experience for them. Yeah. And that is... I suppose, a form of uh, narrative movie making. Yeah. Uh, I don't have a lot of experience with it myself, but uh, I know that like some of those uh, stories can get super, super involved. And uh, a lot of screenwriters are making way more money working for video game companies than they are selling scripts to Hollywood or anybody else for that matter. Yep. Um, so, I mean... I'm all for it. If they can, act, I, I know that they actually can move people. People get really invested, and um, it can be a form of storytelling. I think. Um, but, so know. it's not simply 
chewing gum for the mind. Yeah, <laughs> probably most of it is. <laughs> I think so. I think it does seem like an extraordinary waste of of valuable thinking power yeah. uh, and time. Uh, I mean, I've heard some of my own students admit to playing as much as forty hours a week. Yeah, that's the thing I'm worried about. Like, I, yeah, my students are totally addicted to it. I might part of the reason why I don't play video games is there. I got really addicted to one game years ago. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't like a shooter game. It was basically a strategy game. And oh my God, I, I realized like how much of my life am I devoting mm. to this? And there's so many other things I could be accomplishing. Yeah, I've never done it. I'm my my time is too precious at this point in my life. Yeah. You've been listening to a conversation with Professor Nat Bauman, who teaches film appreciation and video production at SUNY Oneonta. I'm your host, Tim Welch. And be sure to subscribe to our podcast called Class Talkers. Thanks for listening.